1: You rescue me so I can stay and say, I am a child of God. You split the sea, you split. You split the sea so I can walk right through it. My fears are drowned in perfect love. Good morning. It's a pleasure to see everyone here this Sunday morning. It's my pleasure also to welcome you. My name is Aunt Knight, and I have the pleasure to say good morning to you and pray with you this morning um, here at River City. Before we pray together, we read a psalm. It's a psalm that's read and studied throughout the global church um, each Sunday morning. Today's psalm comes from 139, starting at verse one. Um, and it says, "O oh Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar, you search out my path and my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it and all together. You know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Verse 13. For you formed my inner parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame is not hidden from you when, it is, when, it, when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance and your book were written, every one of them. The days they were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O Lord. How vast is the sum of them. If I could count them, there are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. May we bow our heads in prayer. Father God, we thank you for today, this Sunday, as we can gather and worship together. We pray for other believers around the world, those who can gather in, pu- in public, and those who must gather under the cloak of darkness. We pray for their safety on today, Lord, as you love each and every one of us. You have made and crafted us in your image. Thank you for being perfect, and thank you for being holy. Thank you for setting the utmost example of good, Father God. God, we pray for unbelievers on this Sunday. May their hearts be pricked with your love. May every day we show your love, not just on sunday god let each and every day there become less of us and more of you may we thank jesus for interceding on our behalves may we be humble as we repent on today lord we thank you for everything you do for us in jesus name amen
2: i just pray the peace of jesus over every person in this room pray the confidence to know that your identity is settled in Christ and Christ alone. I pray the awareness of him and his suffering and his sacrifice was for the things that you couldn't do. And he's highlighting specifically that you couldn't do it so that you can receive it. We ask for just the spirit of God to be in this community today. We ask that your presence would be tangible that we would settle in and be present with you as you are present with us. Help us to not perform or do things that aren't the kingdom. Help us to be at peace with each other and with you. I just see this kind of image of, of all of us holding our hands out. So if you feel comfortable doing that, maybe it's just a posture in your heart, but if it's not, maybe it's actually holding your hands out Father, we, as we do this, we ask that you would take the things from us that are weighing us down or keeping us in the same place. And even visibly in your mind, just to give those things to him. And then Father, we ask that you would in return give us what we truly need. Every good gift is from you and we are your children whom you love. You are for us and not against us. And all of your blessings in the heavenly realm are ours. Help us to not be so skin deep that it's just about finances or things like that. But let it be about things that truly impact the rest of our lives and the community around us. We thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.
0: This is mainly for people who might be new and who don't know who Bill is. But Bill is our administrative pastor media plus. Thanks. With like a lot of dot, 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 dot after that.
3: I'm a Swiss so. Army knife.
0: Yeah, you are, MacGyver. Um, so I just have to say that if something's happening at River City, Bill is involved somewhere in it. And... Um, I'm super thankful for you, thankful for the whole Pinto family, but I'm thankful for you, what you do at this church, um, for humility. Bill never needs attention, or he never needs the spotlight, so um, if you don't know how much he does, I wanted to take a chance to say that, because he's really influential in our community, so excited that you're speaking today. Thank you. Bring the fire.
3: That was a. That was a. That was a Josh comment at the end there. Um, good morning. I'm going to start with a little bit of prayer. It seems appropriate. Lord, thank you for bringing us here today. Um, this opportunity to gather, to worship together, to get outside of ourselves, to turn our heads our eyes upward to you, to open our hands, to receive what you have for us this morning. We thank you for your presence in this room. We just ask for your peace to descend upon us. Meet us where we are. You are faithful. You know what we need before we even ask. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Thanks, Sarah, for the introduction. It was touching. Um, my intro to this today is to ask you guys a question. How would you describe me? Some of you might say, stranger. That's fine. I can tell you. That's fine. It's fair. It's honest. Far away. Appreciate that. non-creative. It was your word. It was your label for me. Non-creative. Okay, that's great. Those are all interesting, fair. They're all fair, right? They're your perspective on me. Um, But here's the thing, right? Um, We're going to talk about identity today, and none of those things ultimately describe my identity. Uh, My identity is not centered on my efforts at home, here at the church on mission trips, um, in life group, as a counselor, um, in my role as administrative pastor. My identity is based on who I am in the Lord, right? What he says about my identity. So what does the Lord say about our identity? We're gonna run through several of these real quickly. First off, you are beloved. The Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness. You are a new creation. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. You are a child of God, right? We sing that song about once a month. Um, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. You are free. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. You are bold. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. You are, holding a, you are holding a secure future. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Right? These are only a fraction of the statements the Lord has for us about our identity in Christ throughout Scripture. Right, but it's important to look at this progression, I think. The Lord loved you before you even acknowledged him. He called you his beloved, and he drew you to him. And when we enter into a relationship with him, we are a new creation, right? We are made new. The mistakes of the past are washed away. As a new creation, you are a child of God. You are a son or daughter of the Lord, heirs, entitled to everything the Lord has to offer. His peace, his power in the form of the Holy Spirit, his love. When you become children of God, right, you find freedom. Free from the mistakes of your past. Free from the ways you did things. Free from the way you think about things. Free from the way you feel about things. What do I mean by that? Free from the way you did things. Free to stop following the crowd. Free to stop gossiping about people we think less of or who are hurt. Free to befriend someone who is alone. Free to love the unlovable. Free from the way you think about things. Free to look around and think about all that you have, not what you don't have. Free to think about the plight of others and not dwell on your own circumstances or where you've been wronged. We're going to come back to this idea later, being free from the way you think about things. Free from the way you feel about things. Free to choose to be happy about your situation and not sad or angry about your past. Free to feel empathy for those who are having a hard time with something instead of closing, closing them off and being thankful, at least that's not me, right? Or at least I'm not going through that. Free to pursue your relationship with the Lord. Free to ask for help from someone who, who's been farther along the spiritual journey than you, right, to help guide you. Free to worship the Lord in the way that's true for you in your relationship, right? Maybe that means you raise your hands, maybe you don't. But you don't raise your hands because everyone else is raising their hands, and you don't sit on your hands because you don't want to be perceived as one of those crazy Jesus people. Right, with that freedom you can be bold. You can see someone who is hurting and ask them how you can pray for them. You might walk over to the widow or the widower on your, on your street, right, who is alone and ask how you can help. Maybe sit, we'll sit with them and have a conversation. Maybe help them, help them out with some yard work, some cleaning around their house. Maybe wash their car, maybe give them a ride. You can be bold at work. You can see someone sitting alone in the kitchen and share a meal, ask them how they're doing. Find that coworker you might have been mean to, right? Out of insecurity or something else, right? Talk to them, apologize. See what they're struggling with. See how you relate to them. You can be bold at home, right? You can talk to your kids about your faith. You can encourage your kids to explore their own faith, even if what they want really sounds kind of weird, right? Why wham anyone? Um, You can talk with your kids about sex, about social media, about bullying, about friends, Right? With that boldness, you move forward knowing that you hold a secure future. The Lord has plans for you, plans to prosper you, that won't harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. That doesn't necessarily mean you'll be rich. It means he will make sure that you have what you need. And living out of your identity in Christ gives you hope for what lies ahead. Even when things aren't going well, or maybe they're going really poorly, you have the hope and a future because you know he calls you his beloved. He's made you a new creation. You are adopted sons and daughters, with full rights to all that the Father has. You are heirs. Now, I know some of you are thinking, well, that's all well and good. Yeah, okay, but you don't know what I've been through. You don't know what I've done. No, I don't. But the Lord does. And he's pursued you anyway. I'm gonna tell, We're going to go through a couple of quick stories from the New Testament um, about a couple of people that, with some sketchy backgrounds um, who the Lord called by name. We'll start in Luke 19. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be with the guest of a sinner. Several things to note here about Zacchaeus. First, Zacchaeus was a tax collector. He was a Jewish man whose job it was to accept taxes to be paid to Rome. He was a servant of Rome, and often the tax collectors took a little extra on the side for themselves. So as as you can imagine, he's not a real popular figure amongst his, his people. They were sinners. They were considered sinners by the Jewish folks. And here comes Jesus, right? He calls Zacchaeus by name. And Jesus knew how this was going to look to others. They were going to badmouth him. They would mutter behind his back. But he knew his identity. Jesus knew who he was and what his purpose was. And the mutterings of those around him didn't matter. Anyone with some mutterings? It doesn't matter. The mutterings don't matter. He wanted a relationship with Zacchaeus, so he called him by name. He wanted to hear Zacchaeus' story. And what better way to do that than to spend the night at his house? And what's Zacchaeus' response? He repents. He turns toward Jesus out of a godly sorrow, right, for the mistakes he's made. Continuing in Luke 19, But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times that amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost. Son of Man, Jesus knew his identity. It's important to see here that Jesus does not condition his love with, for Zacchaeus on anything. Right? He doesn't tell Zacchaeus to give his possessions away before he'll go to his house. He doesn't tell Zacchaeus to pay back the people that he's, he's stolen from or cheated right, before he'll enter into his life. Jesus first calls Zacchaeus by name and tells him, what he, that, tells him that he needs a relationship with him by saying that he needs to spend the night at his house. Zacchaeus' response to Christ's loving kindness is to repent and make things right. Out of the love that Jesus first showed Zacchaeus, showing him that aspect of his identity, that he is beloved, Zacchaeus responds by entering into relationship. Note that Jesus doesn't shake his finger at Zacchaeus, right, about how bad he's been, about who he's cheated, about the mistakes he's made. He calls him by name and demonstrates his love for him first. We don't need to judge people into right relationship. It doesn't work, and it's not the example we've been given. Water break. This is the example you should take to heart because the Jesus who called Zacchaeus is the same one that calls you into relationship with him by name. He pursues you with a loving kindness. He offers an abundant life with you so you can live out of your identity. All right. The second person we're going to look at is Saul. So after Jesus was crucified and rose from the dead, right, the disciples endured persecution from the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem and the Roman rulers in the area. One of the most notorious Jewish henchmen at the time was Saul. Saul was a Pharisee and thus well-versed in the scripture. Right? When I say well-versed, I mean he would have had most of the Jewish scripture memorized, certainly the first five books of what we call the Old Testament. These were foundational texts for the Jewish faith, and for many of the Jews, they were passed down orally, so you had to memorize them. So they'd be emblazoned on their hearts and minds, so they could pass them down from generation to generation. Saul, this Pharisee, with his knowledge of Jewish scripture, was, like most Jews, waiting for the Messiah to come and save them from their oppressors, right? This is the expectation that compels Judas to betray Jesus that Josh talked about. Their scriptures were the law for them, right? Adherence to the law was demanded for one to be in right standing with God, and because such adherence is impossible for any human being, the Jews had to offer sacrifices. One had to know the scriptures if he had any chance of knowing what to do and what not to do. To be considered worthy in the eyes of God. The scriptures foretold of a Messiah who would come to save the Jews, but almost every Jew expected this Messiah to be like King David, a ruler, a military leader. When Jesus came on the scene, he turned everything upside down, right? The Jews could not see who he was. He was the Messiah they waited for all this time, but he was not a military leader, right? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about um, you've heard it said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Right? Those are not words of a field general right? about to lead his people into battle. Those are the words of a Messiah who was ushering a new covenant in for his people, Jews and Gentiles alike. That was not the Messiah that Saul expected and the rest of the Jews wanted. It certainly wasn't the Messiah they wanted. They wanted someone who was going to bring retribution against all the nations that had oppressed them, that were oppressing them, the Romans at the time. They wanted eye for eye and tooth for tooth justice. Jesus knew that when he quoted the Jewish text, right? Eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. That happens to be in three of those first five books, right? So it had a certain amount of importance to them. He knew what he was saying. He knew what he was pointing them to. All right, so back to Saul. He grew up with this this idea of a a Messiah that's going to come as a military leader, right? Eye for eye and tooth for tooth. So he didn't bat an eye when the Jewish leaders condemned Christ and then crucified him, right? He would have seen Jesus as a false prophet and a blasphemer to claim to be the Son of God or the Messiah. After Jesus was crucified, Saul was only emboldened all the more to help with the elimination of the remnant of believers who remained. In the book of Acts, right, we learn about how the apostles begin their ministry. They're filled with the Holy Spirit, and thousands of new believers come to faith in Christ. Sarah talked about this two weeks ago Pentecost Sunday. Right, and after Pentecost, the apostles started performing miracles just like Jesus, healing people, bringing people in, raising people from the dead. Most of the new believers that join them sell everything, share it communally. They're living out their new identities in Christ. And after their numbers increase, the disciples determine they need more leaders. They need more um, apostles, essentially. And seven folks are chosen to serve. They laid hands on them. They ordained them in a way. Uh, Among this group was a man called Stephen. He's described as a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. He was a preacher. He begins to preach among the Jews, sharing the gospel with them, and draws the attention of the Jewish leaders in the synagogue who argue with Stephen and debate with him about this preaching of Jesus. Unable to win their de- the debates with him, right, they conspire among the people to get them to lodge complaints against Stephen. And then Stephen's brought before the Sanhedrin and essentially put on trial. Before the Sanhedrin, Stephen is asked if the charges of blasphemy are true. And he responds by drawing an analogy between how the Jews rejected Moses' teaching and turned away from God to the same way the Jews have now rejected Jesus, the Son of God. Now, am I'm speaking in a few weeks again. Apologies in advance. Um, And I'm planning to talk about this common thread from the Old Testament through to today, rejecting the teaching we've been given and the Lord's response to that, Um, unless we're still in Mark, and then I'm just doing whatever the next Mark passage is. Um, So anyway, but when Stephen's done speaking before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders are beside themselves. They're furious at him um, for what he's just accused them of. right? They march Stephen out of the city and they begin to stone him. When they're done, the clothes are laid before um, at the feet of the man. All the witnesses, they they tear their clothes, right, in in observation of what's going on with Stephen. Um, They're so irate, they're so upset, they're so beside themselves, and they throw their clothes at the feet of a man who's sitting there watching it. And that's Saul, Saul's watching in approval. All right, let's let's read Acts 8. On that day, after Stephen was killed, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Saul began to destroy the church. Acts goes on to tell us that Philip went to Samaria, where everyone scattered, and preached the gospel there. And in the meantime, Saul continues his, his rampage on the church. In Acts 9... Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, the name that had been given to the new believers in Jesus, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So Saul gets permission from the high priest to take his campaign on the road to Damascus. He's not satisfied with imprisoning and eliminating the threat in Jerusalem. He wants to broaden He wants to crush the rebellion everywhere. He's got this bloodthirst for these new Christians. He's swimming in hate. And in that moment, in that moment, the Lord looks down on Saul and says, I want that one. He is perfect for the task that I have. I want that one. The one who is destroying his church. Right? So you know the story of the Damascus Road. I won't read it to you. But on the Damascus Road, Saul is encountered. He's blinded. There's a flashing light. He has this encounter with the Lord. He tells him to go to this house to see Ananias, and then the Lord goes to, comes to Ananias and he says, go, this man is my chosen instrument, tells Ananias to go to Saul, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings, before the people of Israel, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Josh reminded us last week, there is no resurrection without death. That's powerful stuff, guys. Okay, so what makes Saul such a perfect person for what the Lord has? Well, when I became a Christian, the Lord didn't change my personality. He knew who I was and where I was from. He knew I was from a dysfunctional family. He knew that would serve me later in my walk with the Lord. He, knew about, he knows about your past as well, right? and he's called you by name anyway. He knew all the crap you've been through, all the lousy things you've done. As for Saul, he knew Saul's background would also open up the world to him for his missionary journeys after his conversion on the Damascus Road. Remember, Jesus came not only for the Jewish people, but for the Gentiles as well. The Gentiles were essentially anyone who wasn't Jewish, right Romans, Greeks, Samarians, everybody else. Jesus' call to Saul was to carry Jesus' name before the Gentiles and their kings. Saul was a Roman citizen. That gave him rights to move around the lands that were controlled by Rome, which was much of the known world at the time. After Rome, and Rome was serious about the lands they, they controlled. You've heard the expression, all, all roads lead to Rome. That's because one of the many things that Romans did to maintain control was they built this fantastic road system that facilitated movement of their troops so they could control the areas they were, they were um, under. Will you put up that picture, Morgan? So to get an idea of how serious Rome was about demonstrating their power over the lands they conquered, this is a picture of Hadrian's Wall in northern England. That was built in the second century. It was finished in 128. almost 1900 years ago. I took that picture last summer. That's an empire that's serious about controlling their subjects, about the power and control they have. So the Roman roads made it easier for citizens to carry out their business throughout the empire as well. For Saul, his business was now to spread the gospel. And the Roman roads were perfect for getting around. And when Saul was confronted by Roman soldiers once, his Roman citizenship actually got him out of some serious trouble. We read later in Acts 22, Well into his missionary work, Paul's seized by some Romans. He's going to be flogged and questioned about what he's doing. As they're preparing to flog him, he says, oh, can you do this to a Roman citizen? Oh, no, we actually can't. So he escapes the flogging and is released the next day, and he's able to continue his missionary work. But Paul wasn't just a Roman citizen. Right? The first first Christ followers were all Jews, and and Saul was a Jew. And being able to converse with the Jewish people would be key to Paul's work for the Lord. Remember when the Lord told Ananias that Paul's calling was to carry out Jesus' name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people to Israel, of Israel. Paul was a Jew among Jews, and he would tell you. He wasn't Jewish-ish. He had access to the most important Jewish leaders of the city, right? How else do you think he was able to secure orders from the chief priests to let him go to Damascus? Right, And, and Paul t- tells us this in Philippians 3, 4 to 6. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, according to Jewish law, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Paul had everything he, ne- he needed to have interaction with the Jewish folks he needed to talk to to spread the gospel. His background made him perfect for the plans and purposes the Lord had for him. The Lord called him to spread the gospel to the Gentiles and the Jews. He was a Roman citizen and a Pharisee. He could speak both languages. He was zealous, right? And the same zeal that drove him to persecute the church is the same zeal he took with him on the missionary roads. Right? He knew exactly, Jesus knew exactly what he was getting in Paul when he called him on that road. Someone whose strengths and talents were ideal for the task laid out before him. And over the course of his 18 to 20 years of missionary journeys, Paul went on four missionary journeys overall to all kinds of countries. Cyprus, Turkey, Syria, Samaria, Phoenicia, back to Jerusalem. Syria, Turkey, Greece, and back to Jerusalem. Turkey, Greece, Lebanon, and back to Jerusalem. Lebanon, Turkey, Crete, Malta, Sicily, and Rome. Right? And over the course of those journeys, you've read his letters in the back. It's in the back part of the New Testament. Right? Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, and Philemon, Philemon, somebody. (laughs) Right? And it all started on the Damascus Road when Jesus looked down and says, I want that one. I I said it really quickly. I want that one. One of the things I hope you take away from the life of Paul is that his background prepared him for what the Lord had for him. But also notice that the Lord had him journeying to different places. And I believe that's a great example for us. The Lord has a purpose for your life, and the ways to carry that out may involve several plans. I believe there's a connection between Paul's circuitous missionary journeys and the many roads our lives take along the way. Right? We would much prefer if we knew at 14 right, the rest of our life, what's it going to look like? right? Am I going to finish school, get a job? What's my job going to be like? Am I going to get married? Am I going to have some kids? You know, you want this whole picture of like, this is what I'm, this is what I'm looking forward to. Um, But sometimes living in our identity in Christ is messy. It's not linear. And those side roads may not be side roads. Over the course of our lives, we play many roles. Some of our choosing and sometimes ones we've been given or assigned by others. Whatever roles we have, Right? whether we execute them well or not, our roles don't define who we are in Christ. They don't constitute our identity. When we're living out of our identity, we likely engage our roles differently right, than when we're not in sync with who we are created to be. Over the course of my life, I've had a number of, a number of roles or labels. Right, When I went to school, I was the short kid with a funny last name, brutal. Thank God there weren't Moe's and Chipotle and all the... It <laughs> would have been even worse. It was bad enough with the, the Ford car. <clears throat> when I skipped second grade, I was the smart kid. When my younger sister came along, I was the oldest child. When I was in high school, my parents divorced, and I became the child of divorce. When my mother's alcoholism ran amok, I became an advocate for myself and my younger sisters. When I went to college, I was a soccer player. When I got married, I became a husband. When I went to grad school, I was the Christian guy. When I went to law school, I was the guy in the library eight hours a day, so I do really well. When I graduated from law school, I became a lawyer. When we adopted Keegan, I became a father. When I left the full-time practice of law to go back to counseling, I was a crazy person (laughs) for giving up the salary I gave up in exchange for some unknown trying to establish a practice. When we fostered, I was a foster parent. Now I'm, just, I'm not just a counselor, I'm an administrative pastor, whatever that means. <laughs> All of these roles and labels describe what I did or what I do. Some might say the various roles are positive or negative, depending upon your perspective, right? Some of the roles I do well at times and others I don't. But my ability to do them well in the times when I don't or didn't don't define who I am at my core. There were times when I thought they did, And I fought hard to make sure I did them well. But what I realized is that striving to maintain these roles and labels was a waste of time. I had to be freed from the way I thought about things. And we talked about that in the beginning, right? Free from the way you think about things. We talk around here a lot about the Enneagram. Calm down. I'm not going there. (laughs) I'm not planning to go into that discussion, except to talk about the idea of false self and true self, briefly. When I talk about the, the labels and roles we take on, right, that they're a waste of time, what I mean is that striving to prop up this false self is a waste of time. What does that mean? Well, let's look at John chapter 12. I'm good on time. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. If anyone serves me the father will honor him now is my soul troubled what shall i say father save me from this hour but for this purpose i have come to this hour father glorify your name then a voice came from heaven i have glorified it and will glorify it again okay this is i just like to do this other this stuff first who were these greeks they were either gentiles or hellenist jews right they were there to worship for the passover feast but they wouldn't have been permitted to actually take part in a Jewish Passover feast. John likely writes about this interaction with Jesus because it serves as sort of this ushering in of this of what Jesus will do to tear the veil down between Jews and Gentiles. These Greeks recognize something in Jesus and want to engage him in a conversation. This is very different from the conversations we've heard as we've talked through Mark, where the Jewish hierarchies try to trip up Jesus. That's not the why they're coming to him. Second, why the reference to Philip being from Bethsaida? because these Greeks were likely from Bethsaida and knew Philip, or at least knew he was from Bethsaida. They know Philip is part of Jesus' close followers. They approach him respectfully, right? They say, sir, may we speak to Jesus? Philip then goes to Andrew, because Andrew was also from Bethsaida. They likely confer about this request from their people and decide it's wiser, let's go together and talk to Jesus. Jesus' response Starts with a recognition of his identity again. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The same reference to himself that he makes in response to Zacchaeus. Then Jesus makes this reference to a kernel of wheat that has to fall to the ground and die. And if it dies, it produces many seeds or much fruit. I'd argue this is more than just a reference to Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. It is that. It's definitely that. But it's more than that. Because the next words John gives us, the man who loves his life will lose it. And the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What's that about? We often read these words in the context of Paul's discussion of flesh and spirit and view a man who hates his life in this world as one who hates his flesh, right? Which leads to this idea that the physical or the material is bad. I'm not convinced that's good theology. And I'd argue that what Jesus is trying to say is that the man who hates his life in this world is the man who has let go of the idea that his labels and roles define his identity. I'll say that again. I'd argue that what Jesus is trying to say is that the man who hates his life in this world is the man who has let go of the idea that his labels and roles define his identity. We see in Philippians 3 that Paul also understood that as well. Because after he runs through that list of things where he's talking about what a great Jewish, Jewish person he was, Right? The confidence in the flesh he talks about. He goes on in verses 7 and 8. Whatever was to my profit from that confidence in my flesh or my false self, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. The woman who hates her life in this world understands that her false self is not what she was created to be. She knows she is a daughter of God. She knows that she is beloved. She knows that is her true self. The man who hates his life in this world knows his identity. He knows that his false self is the product of the messages received over the course of his life that saddled him with roles and labels that he thought defined him and was worth fighting for, for worrying about, for losing sleep over. For so long he fought to protect that self Jesus is saying, that life, though, that false self is lost. That life through that false self is lost. We get so attached to the false self, that collection of labels and roles that we live out. That has to die. Your false self is going to die anyway. So why not kill it sooner rather than later? The true self is who you are, hidden with Christ in God. Paul talks about this in Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Set your minds on the things above, not on the things of earth. The false self is attached to and chases after the things of earth. Not just possessions, but also reputation, safety, control, knowledge, power. Paul knew that. He lived that. And he left all that false self behind. The true self things after, seeks after the things that are from above, and those emanate from Christ in whom we find our identity. The impact of understanding our identity in Christ as represented by your true self is that you understand you are a child of God and all the identity statements we talked about earlier. From there, you come to understand that your true self starts from the same place as everyone else's true self, that image of God quality we all have. And if we can come to understand that our essential self is the same as the essential self of the next person who is different from us for any number of reasons, right, we learn there's no point in comparing or competing with them or fearing them or avoiding them or hurting them or ignoring them. There's no point in feeding our false self and the lies it tells us about ourselves and others who are different from us. The letting go of the false self is the seed that has to die that Jesus is talking about. When it dies, it produces many seeds or much fruit because we are then operating out of our identity. From that posture, we can serve the Lord and follow him, as Jesus says in John 12. We can follow him anywhere he leads, even into those hard times or agony that Josh talked about last week. Because often those hard times are the opportunities to kill another seed. To kill another seed or two of the false self and help us realize who we think we are isn't true. Okay, we know the truths about our identity, right, from Scripture. You are beloved. You are a new creation. You are a child of God. You are free. You are bold. You hold a secure future. Despite our mistakes, Jesus sees who we really are and calls us by name into relationship like he did with Zacchaeus. His kindness leads us to repentance, which leads us to the opportunity to cast aside our false self and start living in our identity, our true selves. If Jesus sees our true self, Why continue to put such energy into the false self, the propping it up? Kill that seed today for yourself and for the sake of others around you. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that that our identity is secure. Once we acknowledge that we can't do this alone, once we put our faith in you, we have access to that identity. But our lives have so many layers. Our past, our present, We've heard messages, we've absorbed them, lies, we've absorbed them, and they drive us, and they cause anxiety, and they cause depression, and we run from them, we avoid them, we medicate them. Help us to see that propping that up is a waste of time. Help us experience in a real, tangible, deep way the truth, the reality of who you created us to be. That we are beloved. That we are children of God. That we are new creations. That we hold a secure future. Thank you for pursuing us even before we we knew it. Thank you for continuing to pursue us when we try to regain control of our lives. Thank you for gently reminding us that you're there. Thank you for shaking us at times. If we could have some ministry teams. I feel like there's maybe two groups of people here. If, if you need prayer for anything, please come down. Um, but I feel like there may be people who want to embrace their identity for the first time by repenting from their mistakes, their sins, and start a relationship with Jesus. If that's you, come down and receive prayer. These people will pray with you. The second group of people, I think there are people who, who see the damage they've done to themselves and others right through their false self they are trying to prop up themselves through insecurity, through fear, through control, and they want to let go of it. They're just tired. They want the opportunity to engage life out of that true self, out of that identity. Start that today. Let's kill some seeds.
0: Thank you again for joining us today. And please visit our website at rivercitysmyrna.com.